know, there's just something, isn't there, in knowing what the future is going to hold, or at least what you think it's going to hold. There, there's a peace there versus just a big old question mark. I remember I was at Mayo Clinic, and they found stuff on the back of my brain. They said, oh, this, we thought it was cancer. But they assumed, I don't know how this all works, that it, cancer had to start somewhere else in my body. It probably didn't start there. So they looked everywhere. I mean, they looked everywhere for and then places for, for this cancer. And I remember at one point, I was kind of excited because I thought I knew where it started. It wasn't cancer, by the way, but I thought it So I, I went to the doctor and said, oh, oh, I think I know where it's at. And, and as morbid as that sounds, I think I know where the cancer's at. Oh, goody. Uh, there was something I could handle. Isn't this true? I could handle the future if I knew reality. But the question mark was just something I couldn't deal with. I just want to know what it is, whatever it is, give it to me, and I, I'll know how to proceed. But still, just a big old question mark. It's difficult. Well, we want to know what the future has for us. There's a, this is, I'm told this is a legitimate study that happened. Researchers at Oxy University worked for two years on a project with Global Challenges Foundation and the Future of Humanity Institute to determine how the world will end. So they figured it out. Okay, this is how they determined the world. They spent two years doing this, how the world was going to end. They said, first thing is nuclear war. It's the first possibility. Of course, you can't have a cataclysmic doomsday thing without nuclear war thrown in there somewhere. So nuclear war. And number two was extreme climate change. They said extreme climate change. We're not able to grow our food. Number three, a global pandemic. That's a possibility. Four, they said an asteroid hitting the earth. We've Heard all this before? Five super volcanoes that uh, block out the sun with all the, the ash that they would spew. Uh, number six, unknowns. And they just said something not on our radar, kind of looking at aliens kind of thing, I suppose. Number seven, artificial intelligence disaster. You know, you, you, you train the computers, as it were, to make decisions and then learn from their decisions so they can make better decisions. And if you can't unplug them, I guess they just kind of take over, you know, a la robots or something. Number eight, bad global governments. Can you imagine this one? People who are in charge of the world are just bad people. This could be a possibility. Okay. Honorable mentions, rogue black holes, reversal of the Earth's magnetic field, giant solar flares, or environmental toxins. You know, what amazes me is we had people who worked on this for two years. Can you imagine their, their emotional state when they got done with it? I mean, they're on a couch somewhere taking all kinds of antidepressant medication. This is just awful stuff. Now, as Christians, we do not need to wonder about ultimately what's going to happen. Now, the Scripture tells us real clear. And that's not to say that there may not be a pandemic or there may not be a limited nuclear war. I'm guessing that this world, until the time Christ comes back, will be filled with natural and man-made disasters. We've been told that that's going to be the case. But ultimately, the final curtain call on humanity, we don't have to worry about that because the Bible tells us how that's going to look. It tells us that in our text today. And so if you've got your, your Bibles, if you turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9. I hope you brought your Bibles. You're going to want to see this in your, in your own text. Now, Daniel chapter 9, that, I'll call it the doomsday thing. That, that's, but the, the uh, end of the world is going to be in the last four verses of Daniel 9. Now, don't run to the last four verses because the way God set it up, you've got to start at the very beginning of the chapter and go through. And let me just warn you, if you go there first, it's not going to make any sense to you. You have to understand the first part of chapter 9 before you can get there. Um, 
Daniel 9, starting in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, or Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. Okay. First year of Darius. I hope you're, you're seeing this. Chapter 7 and 8 was Daniel's journal when he, Babylon was still on the throne, right? But now, chapter 9, this is the first year that the Persians had taken over. Babylon, Babylon is done. And Daniel still is over 80 years old, but he still has retained his government position. He still has a, a high degree of influence. And so the, the, the Persians are on the throne. And this text lets us see something really, really significant. Not a whole lot of places do we see this in Scripture. Whenever I come across a uh, famous Christian, and I don't do it too, too terribly often, you know, the celebrity guys, uh, it, let's just assume that they're all, all sincere and right. We just have made them this because they're authors or because they're famous theologians or, or, or what, famous pastors. When I can get to, and I've run across a couple in my, my time, but when I can get them alone or talk with them on a Q&A sort of time, I have one question I always want to ask, and that is, what does your private time with the Lord look like? What does it look like for you? Because I want to know, somebody who walks close to the Lord, what do they do? Well, here in Daniel 9, we're going to see what Daniel does. Incredible, incredible opportunity. And right away, you see him, he's, he's in the scriptures. Now, he's, he's reading I, I, uh, Jeremiah. He's probably reading, even though there were no verse or chapter divisions at that point, but he's probably reading uh, 25, Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. It says, this whole country, Jeremiah is talking about Jerusalem, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled... I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. Other texts would say that after those 70 years, they get to come back. Now, Jeremiah was an old man serving prophet in, in Jerusalem. Most of his ministry was before the Babylonians came in, served a little bit after that. But Daniel was just a kid shipped off to Babylon. Jeremiah's already getting pretty old. At this point, again, been seven decades in Babylon. Jeremiah's long since gone. It's significant to note, by the way, that Daniel's referring to Jeremiah as the scripture. But he reads this text. And then, what happens after when he gets done reading this? He goes into a time of prayer. Probably one of the most uh, exemplary prayers in the Old Testament. Uh, and it's important for us to realize that that prayer came out of his time in the Word. This is an important principle for us. Uh, your prayer time is an overflow of your Bible time. Uh, you hear of people, you know, and I'll see people once in a while will say, you know what, I just don't like to be in the Bible. I'm like, I don't get into that. But I like to pray. That always makes me a little bit nervous. I, I, I wonder what their prayer is like. Let's face it, there's a lot of cults and different religions and New Age stuff, people who like to be in spiritual uh, trances and pray. Uh, but is it biblical? Now, it's interesting. Daniel was, was right here 
And he allowed his prayer, his word, time and word of God to shape his prayer. I would say that we have to have God's word to shape our prayer life. Um, if we don't, I'm going to say that we are not praying correctly, mo- most probably. Larry, Larry Crabb, in his book, The Papa Prayer, he says this. He says, when my grandkids sit on Santa's lap at the mall, they have yet to ask Santa how he's doing. If maybe he's getting a little tired of all these kids, they hop on his lap, recite their list of desired gifts, and hop off. We Christians call it prayer. This is, he's, he's nailing something, isn't he? If, in fact, our prayer has not been shaped by the Word of God, what's it been shaped by? Our evil heart? The consumeristic mentality that, that is, is we're bombarded with on a regular basis? What's it shaped by if it's not shaped by the Word of God? Let me ask you, do, do you need the Word of God to shape your worldview? Or do you just have a good one? You, 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 just, you need God's Word to shape that? you need God's Word to shape your values? Do you need God's Word to shape your priorities? Do you need God's Word to shape your use of sex or time or money or leisure or work? Yes, yes, that's not a trick question. Yes, 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 yes. Do you need God's Word to shape your prayer life? Yes. If, if it does not shape by God's Word, then what's... George Mueller, someone of George Mueller's uh, caliber, he said that when he first became a Christian, he tried every morning just to pray. No, not didn't get into the Word of God yet, just to pray, dedicate the day to the Lord. He said, but inevitably, he would start thinking different things and it would, it would just go south. But, he said, after I decided, Mueller, to, to start my day in God's Word... And I allowed God's word to shape and direct my prayer. I, became, I came into an effective, powerful time of prayer. This is true for, for all of us. And it was true for, for Daniel. Keep in mind, not only did his time in God's word start his prayer, that he's going to go into, incredible prayer, but it um, is laced. And we don't have time to do this this morning, but if we could go through his prayer, phrase by phrase by phrase, you would see that they reflect the word of God. He's got allusions in here to Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, Exodus 34, Psalm 44, Deuteronomy 25. He just was so filled with God's word that when he prayed, what came out was God's word. Jesus said the same sort of thing in John 5. He says, you know, if, if you abide me and my words abide in you. Ask what you will and it will be done. He says, if you're filled with his word and you understand his word, you know what you're going to pray? You're probably going to pray back his word. You're going to pray his will. It's going, to, it's going to be there. It's going to happen. And so Daniel starts off praying out of his time with the word. Now, this is what I want you to do, though. We don't have this on the screen. I'm going to read his prayer. And I want you to listen for two things. I want you to listen for his uh, emotional state, okay? And I want you to listen to his um, request. Just before I do that, notice verse 3. This is significant, though. It says, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, what bothers me about this verse is because what he just read was good news. What he just read in Jeremiah was, Sentence is over. You guys are getting ready to go home. I'm done with you. You don't have to be in Babylon anymore. You were only supposed to be there for 70 years because in Second Chronicles it lets us know that God had to give the land rest because they abused it. But, but 70 years was the time and now the time is up and you get to go home. This was good news. You'd think he'd be high-fiving and jumping around and dancing. and Yeah, this is wonderful. But do you see how he's praying though? 
He turns his face to the Lord. That's like with a, a scowl intensity. He pleads. Now, pleading is not celebrating. Pleading is, is anguish. It's anxiety in your prayer. He, he's doing it with, with fasting. Uh, you fast because, not just because it's a discipline. You fast because you are so, so much angst that you can't eat. You just have to go before the Lord with this. Nothing else is, is important. You just have to do that. He's, he's wearing sackcloth and ashes. Now, Daniel was was very high-ranking official. For him to even be able to get a hold of, of sackcloth and ashes was going to be a little bit of work. But this was to match what's going on in his heart. So inside, we need to know just from this verse, he's a mess. And you've got to ask yourself, why is he a mess? This should be good news. Why, why, what's going on? Now, let me read this prayer. He says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous. But this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our faithfulness, unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings and our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord, the God is, the Lord God is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws that he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your laws and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it's written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not, notice this, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord... Our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we've sinned and we've done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our Lord, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make this request because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay. Because your city and your people bear your name. I'm guessing when, when you when you have to project a little bit why he's he's taking this you should be jumping up and down you should be excited why are you so sad this is kind of a dark type of prayers I wonder 
if, if Daniel for the first time is realizing, when he's reading Jeremiah, that he's realizing that Israel is in captivity because of judgment, because of their sin. And maybe they all knew it, they just didn't have time to think about it, really. But he's starting, it's really starting to soak in. Or I wonder if he's saying, you know what? We got here to Babylon and we were so busy trying to learn a new language and figure out stuff and, and, and feel sorry for ourselves. We never took time to repent, to say, I'm sorry. You know what's interesting? I think that might be it because they didn't. To my knowledge, they never come to a place where as a nation they say, we've sinned. They just take their lumps and just keep on, keep on going. Maybe Daniel knows that they were supposed to go home, but he looks around at, at, at the nation of Israel, the, the, the Jewish people, and he sees that, you know what? Like he said here, they're still sinning. They not only they not repented at all, they, they still are flagrant with it. Now, it's been seven decades, so most of the folk that he's going to be talking to here are people who were born in Babylon. They only know of Jerusalem because their parents or grandparents told them about it. But you know what? Babylon is home. And you know, and all things considered, it's really not a bad place. I mean, why go back to Jerusalem? It's just a big old pile of rocks right now. Meanwhile, my business is thriving here in, in Babylon. And I, I learned the language. I'm doing fairly well here. And they're not that mean to us. You know, it, it's okay. It's not a bad thing. Matter of fact, when the decree is said to go back, uh, Ezra lets us know that only a remnant go back. The vast majority don't want to go. So maybe Daniel's looking at all of his people. And he's looking at their sin. He's looking at their heart. He says, oh God, what are we going to do? Maybe he's thinking the temple, the place where we find forgiveness is gone. What do you do? Oh God, what? And then he says at the the end, he says, remember the city. Now now it's interesting. We want to look at this. Let's, let's, Let's pick up. Daniel's still praying, right? In verse 20. He's still, still going on. But he says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Still praying, because it's divine interruption. Now, let me stop and ask you something about Daniel's prayer. What would you say was primary issue of Daniel's prayer? He didn't ask for a whole lot of stuff. I would say it's pretty much about his sin, right? Sin of the people. You know, it's interesting. Whenever you find a, a saint that has this much copy written about him, as Daniel does, almost inevitably there's some sort of sin that, that they have, like a video at the beginning of the thing today, some sort of sin that they've been a part of. But Daniel, there's no sin. No sin listed. Now, was he a sinner? Yeah, he was a sinner. But did you hear how he he prayed? Did he say they sinned, they blew it, they fell apart? No, we, 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 we've sinned. Now, what's going to happen here is, is Gabriel interrupts his prayer. He's still praying. And you need to know that these next four verses are some of the most controversial verses in the whole Bible. These next four verses... Some have said are the most precise, concise prophecy of the future anywhere in Scripture. So referred to as Daniel's 77s or Daniel's 70 weeks. But it's real important, again, that you, you 
people want to start there. You're not going to understand it unless you can back up and understand the prayer because the 77th prophecy was given as an answer to Daniel's prayer. So if you don't understand Daniel's prayer, I tell you, I've I read a lot of, about this. I mean, this is such, these four verses are really a huge thing. There have been so many doctoral dissertations done on these four verses. There have been books and booklets and conferences. Denominations started, denominations split over these four verses. These are, these are, are huge. And so I've, I've read a ton of stuff over the years on, on this. But it's amazing how many times I would read where they just start right here in verse 24. They, they, they almost they pull it right out of its context. And reality is, verse 24 through 27 is an answer to Daniel's prayer. And so if you don't understand why Daniel's in so much angst, if you don't understand why he's praying, if you don't understand what he's asking for, you're never going to understand the answer unless you understand the question, right? And so when you look at the prayer, you say, okay, what do we, we see here? Well, there's different characters that he talks about. Uh, his main subjects, he's got Jerusalem, he, he's got the temple, he's got Israel, people, his people. His issue, I think we could honestly easily say that the issue in Daniel's prayer is probably sin, confession. He spends the whole thing, long prayer, just talking about confession. He doesn't ask for that new bike, he doesn't, but he's talking fancy health, he's, he's asked for for forgiveness, atonement. It's, it's sin. And again, I think what he's doing is he realizes, Jewish person, forgiveness is only found in the temple. It's only found in sacrificial system. That's where atonement comes. Well, the temple's gone. And, and I can't stand, it's not like, well, I haven't blown it since we were last at the temple. So I'm, I'm in trouble. And so he's realizing that. He's saying, okay, God, what are we going to do about this? There's this, this sin thing. There was only one way in the atonement thing. And now there's no atonement. We're in trouble. We're just really in trouble. And then, then he looks at specific requests. Verse, he's got three requests in this. I hope you heard them. Maybe not. Let me remind you. Verse 16, he has a request for Jerusalem. He says, would you remove your wrath from Jerusalem? Jerusalem is a pile of rocks right now. Jerusalem was the headquarters of Yahweh worship for the world. Jerusalem was the place where God put his name to let the rest of the world know that there is a God and he's in the house. That's, that's what it's about. But right now, Jerusalem's pile of rocks. And so he's, would you take your wrath away? Because I know it was your wrath that brought that to, to be. Would you remove it? Second request, he says in verse 17. Lord, would you, would you look with favor on the, the desolation of your sanctuary? That's the temple. Remember, the temple's now it's just gone. And that was the only place where we had forgiveness, where we had communion with you. It's, it's gone now. And the third request he made in 18, he goes back to Jerusalem, but he adds something. He says, uh, because it has your name, it bears your name. I don't think Daniel's just trying to play God here. I don't think he's saying, by the way, God, you know, I mean, your reputation's at stake, not mine. So, you know, you better make it good. You know, you don't want to look bad to all these people. Knowing Daniel, I don't think that's his, his, what's going on. Especially since Gabriel said, you're highly esteemed, which means God considers you precious. I just wonder if Daniel really is primarily concerned about God's reputation. That'd be wild. Daniel's primarily concerned about God's reputation. And so this prayer of, of confession... You want to know how to pray for the church? This is a great prayer. When's the last time you did a prayer of confession? Now, I'm going to 
don't shout out, but are you ever frustrated with uh, the sins of the church? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, sin of him and her and them. No, 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 no. Your sin is part of the sin of the church. Now, sin's one of those things that I can see it in y'all, but, you know, for me, uh, you, know, you don't know, I had a bad day. You don't understand. If you were going through what I was going through, you know, same thing, worse, I'm sure. And, you know, my motivation was right. I judge you by what you do and by what you say and by what, what uh, motivations I attribute to you. But I judge me by the ideal motivations that I'm sure are there. That's pretty much the way we do it. But Daniel put himself in his our sin. You ever say, Lord, I know what you said about sin of pride, but it is so much a part of who we are, a part of who I am, that we don't even see it. So we were self-deceived about it. I know what you said about the sin of gossip, but Lord, we, we do it anyway. We just, it's, it's what we do. We're pretty good at it. Uh, Lord, about the sin of, of neglecting your word. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're just too busy. We've got a lot of things in life, usually stupid little things, television and internet. We're busy things. We don't have time for your word. And far, as far as really worshiping you, I, I can't get into all of that. And being kind to others and, and caring and giving and sacrificing. No, 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 I'm not. we just don't have time. We can't go there, Lord. You ever stop and say, Lord, I'd ask you to bless us, but I'm not so sure you should. There's really no reason why you should bless FAC. I mean, we're not better than anybody else. We don't have it nailed it's not we're, we're, we're the model church. And so you know what? We just need your grace. We want you to bless us. But here's where it's got to be. Because truly, your reputation is here. Because truly, your, your saints bear your name. And your church bears your name. So please, Lord, please. Would you, not because we've earned it. Because we know we haven't. Prayer of confession. Boy, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for our church. So then the Gabriel had come to Daniel. I said, okay, I'm giving you the answer. You've got to view the answer that he gives in light of the prayer. Now these Daniel's 70 weeks. Let me share a couple things before we look at it real briefly. Um, there are at least four major interpretations of this text. And each of the four major interpretations has multiple variances. So you can have a lot of different interpretations of the text here. And you need to know there's not just one interpretation that is held by people with a high view of Scripture. I've got folk that I respect biblically in every single one of the categories. And so it's a... Uh, we want to hold it humbly. I'm going to share with you what... What, is, what I believe is most consistent hermeneutically, which is most consistent biblically, which is a very standard view of this text. But as we do, we've got to make sure we, we hold with a degree of humility. We really have to make sure we are lining up with why the author gave us this. So in verse 24, he says, Seventy sevens, Gabriel's talking, are decreed for your people and your holy city, He's going to do a different couple of things. But the 77s, that's 70 weeks. Um, that can either mean 70 sets, 70 units of seven weeks, days, or seven years, because every time in Scripture, it's one of those two things. You've got seven days in a week, or you've got seven years. Every seventh year, there was a sabbatical year that people of Israel needed to uh, do certain things. Um, 
I don't know of anybody, I don't care what's, what, what color they are theologically, who believes this is 70 weeks of days. Nobody. Almost everybody. Uh, this is 77 or 70 weeks, 70 sets of weeks of years. So 70 weeks of years, we're dealing with 490 years, right? It says 490 years, 70 weeks of years, are decreed for your people and for your holy city. That's for the nation of Israel, for Jerusalem. He's going to answer Daniel's prayers here. He says we talked about Greece in the last chapter. We talked about Persia in the last chapter. We talked about Rome in chapter 7. But now your prayer is specifically about the nation of Israel. All right, we'll talk about it. And he says there are several things that are going to have to happen in these 490 years. He says we're going to finish transgression. Now, these are, these are, all these things are right out of Daniel's prayer. This is probably great news for Daniel. We've got a plan here, Daniel. We're going to finish transgression. We're going to put an end to sin. We're going to atone for wickedness. We're going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Then we're going to seal up visions and prophecy. In other words, you're not going to need them anymore. We're going to anoint, anoint the most holy. Some incredible things are going to happen in these next these 490 years that have been set aside for your people. Verse 25 says, Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that word, means, that word is Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Okay, you're saying Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. I know you're worried about Jerusalem. I'm telling you it's going to be rebuilt. But follow this for a second. If 70 weeks of seven, 70 sets of seven, equals 490 years, 69 sets equal 483 years, right? And he says, this 70-week thing's going to start. Just do you know, Daniel, it's going to start with the issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, uh, Artaxerxes issues a decree to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Other degrees have been mentioned that they could go back and start the temple, but, but 20th year of Artaxerxes, first day of the month of Nisan, that would be March 15th, I believe, um, 445 B.C., this whole thing starts. And, and Gabriel says, and that first 69, there are 70 weeks, but the first 69 will end when the Messiah comes, the anointed one comes. Now, if you, you take when the decree was offered, 445 B.C., March 15th, 445 B.C., you subtract 83 years, you use the Jewish calendar, 360 days a year, you end up with April 6, 32 A.D., According to Luke 19, the very day of the triumphal entry, when Jesus walks into Jerusalem, comes into Jerusalem on, on, a, on a colt, saying, I am your king. From the beginning of the issuing of decree until the Messiah comes, there'll be 483 years. It's exact. But then, then notice, this is interesting though, because he says, after the 62 sevens, plus the sevens, so 69, uh, the anointed one, will be cut off and we'll have nothing. You know, the, this is the clearest scripture in the Old Testament of the Messiah losing his life. Who would have, who would have thought? Now, we've got Isaiah 53, but there's, the Jewish person will say, no, that's not about a Messiah. This, we are that, that, that person. We are the ones who went through all this pain for the world. Blah, blah, blah. But, but there isn't a more clear passage where it says the Messiah will be cut off after those 69 weeks. 
Uh, also, it says the people of the ruler who will come. Not the ruler who will come. We'll talk about him in a second. But the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, you know, this is a fascinating text because the sanctuary and the city right now are rubble. So he's saying, we're going to rebuild it. Now, that, that first 69 times, it's going to be rebuilt. It trenches and straight. It's going to be a fine city, Daniel. We're going to rebuild it. But you need to know, after, this first six, after those 69 weeks, two things are going to happen. Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to die in 233 AD. And the city is going to be destroyed. Temple is going to be destroyed. 70 AD, Titus Vespasian general came through and, and destroyed the city. Major war with the, the zealots and destroyed the temple. It hasn't been rebuilt since. And you got it's real important to see that there is seems to be an, an interval. Now, follow me with me again, right? The sixty nine weeks, the seventy weeks. It starts with the issuing of a decree. It's four forty five. The first sixty nine ended with the coming of the Messiah. And then there's going to be a seventieth week. We've got one more week. We've got to do right, but it has not started yet. There seems to be an interval, and in this interval, he doesn't tell us how long it's going to be. We know at least two historical events: the Messiah will be cut off, and the city will be destroyed. It's in seventy, so there's been some time. It's my understanding that that's where we're living today. The seventieth week is going to start. In the next verse, he says that. He says. He will, who's the he? We'll talk about that in a second. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. So there's this, this interval. It, it, the 69th stops the coming of the anointed one, but the 70th one does not start until this he, whoever he is, sets up a covenant or a treaty or an alliance with the many for the last, last week of years. Now you might say, well, uh, this gap thing, I'm not so sure I, I like, it should be... 490 years continuous. Why is there a gap? All I can tell you is it's not strange biblically. We've got Jesus, right? We know that Jesus was to come in two advents. He came once as a suffering servant. Then he, he, he went up to heaven and he was going to be gone for who knows how long, at least 2,000 years. But when he comes back again, then he'll come as the reigning king and set up millennial righteousness kingdom. But the folk in the Old Testament had no clue that there was this big old gap there. They, they, they saw it as, 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 as one thing. Uh, but we know there really is a gap there. The 70th week starts when he confirms a covenant with the many. He. Who is this he? All you got to do is grammar. Just go back. Find the uh, antecedent. Before that, you come up with the ruler who's to come. Who Daniel talked about in Chapter 7 is the little horn. He talked about in chapter 8 as Antiochus was the type of. He'll talk about it again. He's, this is the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians 2. This is the beast of Romans 13. This is the Antichrist in, in 1 John 2. He's the one who confirms a covenant. And this is it's interesting. Now, we don't know what, the, what this covenant, what this treaty will mean. Is it just world peace? I've got a quote from the uh, uh, Secretary General of NATO. And I, boy, I wish I'd have brought it with me. But basically, he says, send us somebody who can give us world peace. And we don't care if he's God or the devil. We will follow him. Um, so you, what's, what's this treaty? I don't know. Maybe it incorporates the building of, of the, the Jewish temple. We're going to build you a, a, new, a new temple. I, I'm not sure. But I do know this. Halfway through the, the seven-year treaty, halfway through this last week, he will set himself up, right? And on a wing of the temple, he will set up abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. 
You need to know, Jesus saw this as future stuff. Jesus didn't see this as something fulfilled in, in history. Matthew 24. He says, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Jesus knew this text very well. Let the reader understand. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. Jesus saw this was something yet yet future was going to happen. He's talking, this in Revelation, this last 70th week, it's a seven-year, they call it the, the tribulation, the last half of this, when he really goes bonkers here, it's called the great tribulation. And you, you look at it and you go, okay, wow, well, that's, wow, okay, again, so what? What does this really mean for me today? I mean, it's, it's interesting. I'm just not sure. Two questions you've got to ask yourself. Two questions you've got to ask yourself. First question, what is the purpose of this text? What is the purpose of all prophecy? What is the purpose of every text of Scripture? Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, this text and every text and all prophecy is there for one purpose, not for us to set times, but to sanctify us, to grow us. And so I just got to throw this warning out because I know we see prophecy sometimes and we just roll, roll up our sleeves and man, this is cool stuff and we're just going to dig into it, make it a great study. And it's good to study God's word. It's good. It's good. That's not a problem. But you got to ask yourself, if it's not making me more peaceful, and joyful and loving. It's not making me more patient, or more kind, or more good, more, more faithful. If it's not making me more gentle, if, if self-control isn't more in my life because of this, then you know what? I'm probably looking at it wrong. Because Scripture is not just to be a, a hobby. It's not just to be a, a something we, we collect. It's, it's supposed to be something that transforms us, even these. And so you say, okay, well, what did the original audience, what might they have gotten out of this? Would they have cared so much about the 490 years? I mean, for them, they'd be, everything is future. So they're going, well, it's, just, it's all future. I'm not going to be around in 500 years. So, I, oh, well. So what would they get out of this? Well, look at Daniel's prayer. They would have understood as awful as things seem. Sometimes there are people that, that come, injustice reigns. It does sometimes. But ultimately, God's going to win. Ultimately, there will be righteousness on the whole earth. Pure righteousness. He's saying, you know what? This is, this is incredible. There's going to be one day atonement. All this sin that was so bothering Daniel, it's going to be atoned. It's going to be done. Not only that, Daniel, it's going to be an end of sin. You can't, you can't sin anymore. It's over. This has got to be incredible good news for Daniel. And if we find that it's not necessarily good news for us, it's kind of just an indictment on us. Maybe we're so used to the cross and Jesus and we're forgiven. Oh, yeah, Lord, I'm sorry. Yeah, forgive me for whatever I did wrong. Amen, let's go. Uh, if, in fact, that's our mentality, you just got to know that's not Daniel's mentality, is it? That's not where we should be. We were there. I get there. I'm there. 
But it needs to waken us, wake us up anyway and say, my, my heart needs to be transformed by this text. The goal, I think, for these people, I think the same goal for us, while you're living in Babylon or wherever you're living, have your perspective set not on the things, not the headlines, not the things in this world, not the, the, the people who come, not the injustice, as much as beyond to the day when there will be righteousness reigning, when there will be a, a judgment, when there will be a, a cleaning of, of house, when all the sin and others, but praise God, mostly in me, is eradicated, it's taken care of. He says, if you're going to make it in this world, that's what you've got to have your eyes on. I mean, it's fine for Annie to say the sun's going to come out tomorrow. You know, Gabriel does not sing that. Gabriel says, no, tomorrow, you know what, it might be pretty bad. But you do need to look beyond that to the final day when all sin stuff is, is done. And Christ has made atonement. And he comes to set up righteousness. So let me just ask you, because if you don't know him, and all you have to go on in life is, is things like the Oxy report that talk about how the world will end, all these terrible things. If that's where you're going to put your hope, just hope that that junk doesn't happen in your lifetime. That's a pretty uh, uh, morose kind of perspective of life. It doesn't have to be that way. When Christ came 2,000 years ago, 500 years after Daniel, and, and died for my sin, for your sin, he died that we might have the freedom. I know some of us live in such guilt, stuff that's happened maybe a long time ago, such guilt. We're just feeling terrible, terrible, terrible. He died for those things so that we don't, we don't have to. I mean, they're going to be part of our story, but also can be part of your story is forgiven, marked. So let me, let me ask you to bow your heads with me for just a moment. I just want to invite you, if you've never surrendered your life to him, if you've never taken your future and placed it into his hands, we would say, Christian world, if you've never come to the foot of the cross and recognized that he died for you, then I would invite you to do that even this morning. Surrender your life to him.